This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School, and I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. We have breaking legal news. We have a verdict in the trial concerning the murder of Ahmed Arbery. And Joe, will you help us set the scene before we get into the legal details of everything that happened? Indeed, Jessica. Today, the jury found three men guilty in the murder of Ahmad Arbery. There is finally a conclusion to the event that began on February 23rd of 2020. Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old black man, was jogging in a residential neighborhood called Centilla Shores near Brunswick in coastal southern Georgia. Gregory and Travis McMichael, who are father and son, and a neighbor named William Roddy Bryan, all white men, chased Arbery in pickup trucks and accosted the young man under the impression that he was a burglar. Arbery was fatally shot with a shotgun by Travis McMichael after a scuffle. Now, worthy of note here, Jessica, these three men were not arrested until cell phone video of the shooting was leaked more than two months later and protests and a public outcry for justice ensued. This is the second verdict in a high-profile court case with strong racial aspects in five days. Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty just last Friday on November 19th. It was our most recent episode of our podcast. So, Jessica, what What was the tack for the prosecution in this case now that we have a verdict? Yeah, Joe, we've talked about this in the sense that in a way, because the cases are so different, which we'll talk about more, it's strange to talk about them at the same time, but they're happening at the same time. And they both broadly bring up these issues of self-defense and vigilanteism and easy access to guns. And so what was the prosecution's tack here, you asked me? Well, you know, legally, there were as far as I could see, two big kind of thresholds that we were talking about. The first is the citizen's arrest threshold. So the defense was arguing, well, we have a right to basically come up to Mr. Arbery and to arrest him because we had a reasonable suspicion that a felony occurred. There's no police officers around. This citizen's arrest law by the way, has since been all but eviscerated by the state of Georgia. But of course, they were tried under the old law, which I think is so important for us to remember because these defendants were found guilty of really big crimes under laws that were arguably quite favorable to them. And then the second hurdle, we talked about the first hurdle of citizen's arrest, the second hurdle really being this idea of self-defense, that once these three defendants were in the situation that they then had the right to use deadly force. And the prosecution here said basically no to both, right? It, the jury ultimately, I think, agreed with the prosecutors that Mr. Arbery did not pose an imminent threat to the three defendants and that they didn't have at least a reasonable suspicion that he had committed a felony and that they then therefore have the legal right to do all of this, to chase him through the suburban neighborhood. I think the prosecutor's argument, the tack really was, Mr. Arbery was the one under attack. Let's not lose sight of it. And of course, that was largely, not completely, but largely the winning argument. 
Yes, exactly, Jessica. In closing arguments on November 22nd, lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski said, quote, you can't create the situation and then go, I was defending myself. This is an eerily similar statement to the position taken by prosecutors in last week's Rittenhouse trial. Entirely different outcome there. This case is wholly different, as you said, wholly different details. Okay, so that's the prosecution, Jessica. What was the defense's position on this for these three men? Yeah, it's such a good question, Joe, in terms of the differences and, you know, why the different outcome. Well, let's talk about the defense and the differences kind of at the same time. You know, as we said, both of these cases bring up issues of our self-defense laws. What does a reasonable person do? The effect of widespread gun ownership and this idea of vigilantism. Of course, they're both broadly taking place against this backdrop of you know, reckoning with our criminal justice system and the systemic problems that we have in that system. But key differences here. In this case, three white men charged with killing a black man. In the Rittenhouse case, one white man charged with killing two white men and injuring one. Here, it the murder helped spark the protests regarding our criminal justice system. There, the deaths actually happened during the protests. And so the defense's argument in this case really was, well, of course, under the Georgia laws, we could be there because of the citizen's arrest law, which honestly, I think in a lot of ways, it's fair to question whether or not that's a relic of a racist era. And that then once we started that citizen's arrest, which we had the right to begin, because of Mr. Arbery's actions, then we had the right to use self-defense. And again, ultimately, really largely unsuccessful defenses in these cases. All right. So I know that there were 27 total charges spread out over these three men. Can you please help unravel them and then explain which men are guilty of which of those charges? It's kind of a morass. It was hard for me to sort that out. Totally a morass. So what we're looking at here is that each of the defendants faced nine different charges, but nine identical charges. So of course, there was Travis McMichael himself who pulled the trigger, his father, Gregory McMichael, who, as we said previously, worked in law enforcement, and then their friend, William Bryan. So Travis McMichael was found guilty on all counts. Malice murder, which is what a lot of people listening probably will think of as first degree murder, where you have an intent to kill with essentially an ill will. That's a generalization, but their version of malice murder is basically what a lot of people think of as first degree murder. Um, Other charges, felony murder, false imprisonment, aggravated assault, criminal attempt to commit a felony. So again, Travis McMichael found guilty on all of the charges. Gregory McMichael, guilty on everything but malice murder. And that basically means that Gregory McMichael, Travis's father, is found guilty on everything but the most serious charge. Then we have the friend, William Bryan, He's found guilty on six of the nine charges. So he's found not guilty of malice murder, which is, again, kind of like a first-degree murder for a lot of people if they're thinking about the criminal code and, and what it might mean in their state. Also found not guilty on one of the four felony murder charges and not guilty on an aggravated assault. Now, I keep saying malice murder and felony murder. I wanted to point out 
the difference between those two because they both say murder and felony sounds really serious. So what's the difference here? Again, malice murder really is what we understand as first degree murder. It's an intentional killing, quote, a deliberate intention unlawfully to take the life of another human being, end quote, where, beginning the quote again, no considerable provocation appears and the killer shows an abandoned and malignant heart. That's different from felony murder. Under a felony murder charge, you don't have to be the person who actually killed the victim. Instead, somebody else can, it can be that you commit a felony that results in, for instance, Mr. Arbery's death. So there are four felony murder charges that were filed against each of the defendants. And these were two counts of aggravated assault, one count of false imprisonment, and one count of criminal attempt to commit a felony, as we just talked about. So felony murder really means you committed a felony and it resulted in someone's death. That's a very different charge than malice murder. All right. So having been found guilty on some of those 27 charges, what kind of sentences is each man facing here? So they're all potentially facing life in prison. I think when it comes to Travis, it would be very difficult to see how he could ever see the outside of a prison, particularly because of that guilty on malice murder. When it comes to Travis McMichael, my question, again, I'm not somebody who practiced criminal law, but my question would be, is a judge going to think about mitigating factors like the fact that he actually did previously work with law enforcement? And then, of course, because he's older, because he's already 65, a lengthier sentence could amount to life in prison. And then the neighbor, William Bryan, who's 52, he's obviously facing six very serious um, guilty convictions here, and he could face my understanding is up to life in prison. Again, I don't know what the judge is going to think with respect to potential mitigating factors. Okay, so some very serious jail time there for these three guys. Let's talk about the jury a little bit. First off, Jessica, the jury only deliberated for about 11 hours over the course of two days. Give us some tea leave reading here. What does that usually mean? So, Joe, I think it basically means two things. And it feels weird to say this when we're talking about a murder and people potentially spending the rest of their lives in prison. But I think one of the things we're looking at is juries often come back on Friday afternoons and on the day before a holiday. And we are recording this episode uh, basically minutes after the verdict came out, and it is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So I'm not saying that they rushed. I'm saying that they were cognizant of the fact that Like most human beings, I think that they wanted to be done with this before the long holiday. Now, having said that, you know, what does the relatively short deliberation mean? It means I think that they really just uh, believed in the prosecutor's narrative and looked at the laws and looked at the facts. And frankly, let's not forget, looked at that video and decided that, In most cases, there really was not reason for them taking uh, what amounted to criminal action. 
Okay, then what about the jury selection process in this particular case? Glynn County, Georgia is 78% white, 16% black, and 4% Hispanic, according to 2018 census data, the most recent data we have available. The jury selected for the Arbery case was 11 white people and one black man. Ultimately, this didn't matter. They were convicted. But how is that sort of thing possible in 2021, late 2021? Yes. Well, one thing is we, of course, don't know for sure that it ultimately didn't matter in the sense that you change one juror and you potentially change the jury in the jury's verdict. But it is absolutely true, of course, that the jury was able to get to guilty without having a jury that frankly looks like Glynn County, Georgia, that a predominantly white jury, of course, found the defendants guilty on some very serious charges here. So the defense was really accused of using their peremptory challenges, challenges where you can exclude jurors without giving a reason for racially discriminatory reasons. And the judge basically here agreed with prosecutors that potential jurors who were black were being excluded. But in Georgia, and I'm going to say this a bit broadly, but my understanding is essentially if you give a race neutral reason for why those jurors were excluded, then it's not fatal to your jury selection. So here, defense attorneys gave reasons other than race to reject those jurors. In this case, they went through a jury pool, I think, of a thousand people to begin with who started, who received the jury summons. And As we said, we ended up with a panel that had only one black juror and 11 white jurors. Is this something that we should think about moving forward in terms of how to ensure that we have juries that truly represent a jury of our peers? Absolutely. That is for, um, I think, another episode where it's not late breaking news. Okay, Jessica, before we go, one really key aspect of this trial, there was a very long delay between the incident and the arrest of those three men. Seventy-five days elapsed during which there were protests. Gregory McMichael worked as an investigator at the Brunswick Circuit District Attorney's Office for 37 years. He retired in June of 2019. Critics of the prosecution would say that this amounts to favorable treatment and that McMichael was above the law in some respects. So, Jessica, are there going to be any repercussions for that? Well, we already know here that the former district attorney was, in fact, indicted by a grand jury in early September, and she was charged with trying to protect the three men who, in fact, we can now say murdered Mr. Arbery. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that, as you said, basically nothing happens in this case without the video. I mean, we've now had so many cases, George Floyd, Rittenhouse the case concerning the murder of Mr. Arbery, where the video just changes everything. And potentially, not just the outcome, right, but that we even have a trial at all. And so Miss Johnson is, in fact, charged with trying to protect these three men. She faces a felony count of violating her oath of office, as well as a misdemeanor for hindering a law enforcement officer. And there's some pretrial evidence in this case that showed Greg McMichael called Johnson on her mobile phone shortly after the shooting. I believe he said, quote, Jackie, this is Greg. Um, Could you call me as soon as as you possibly can? My son and I have been involved in a shooting and I need some advice right away. So uh, that is just another 
frankly, I think, troubling twist in the story. And Joe, of course, one thing to remember as we're recapping what happened in the state criminal trial is that the defendants also face federal hate crimes charges, and we will follow that trial uh, when and if it does happen. Okay, Jessica, thank you so very much. The pandemic, as we know, is far from over, but with widespread vaccinations and now boosters, Americans will be sitting down at Thanksgiving tables tomorrow. Together with last week's Rittenhouse verdict, there will now be two more topics to discuss or to do anything in your power absolutely to avoid discussing with your uncles this year. So thank you for doing so, Jessica. I appreciate it so very much. And I hope you and your family have a lovely Thanksgiving. To you too, Joe. I followed some of your cooking on uh, Instagram and I look forward to, we should really wrap up your whole meal in our next episode. Oh, I would love to. I have so many things to talk about. I have so much cooking ahead of me. So thank you, Jessica. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram and now TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day and also eating a lot of food this weekend. You can find our podcast, Passing Judgment, on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. On behalf of Jessica and myself, we hope all of you are surrounded by kith and kin this holiday season and have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. 